You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Unbelievable. Just an unbelievable feeling. I mean, I used to pee in the bed three feet from where I sit right now. Welcome in. It is the Late Kick Extra podcast. It's a Valentine's Day edition. And if you're new to the program, a lot of what was just said makes no sense to you until I inform you of the context in which I bring you the show today. I am down in Harris County. I'm not in Nashville. I took a little two or three day sabbatical, if you will, which is supposed to mean you don't work, but I work even down here. Because uh, there is no off season, and I'm actually in my childhood bedroom right now, kind of having to kind of having to speak down, keep my voice a little bit low because people are sleeping here, because I like to record at night. But yeah, we're home and we're jam packed. As you probably heard last week, we brought the Late Kick Extra Mailbag Podcast back. That's what you're listening to today. I bring it to you, or at least I try to, every Tuesday, and it is wall to wall. It's I think the best content we do, and I'm not going to waste any more time because I've got about 14 trillion questions that you submitted. Can't get to them all. I'll get to as many as I can. If you want to submit a question, at Late Kick Josh on Twitter, at Late Kick Josh on Instagram. First up. Seth hit me and asked, which program is closest to obtaining blue blood status for the first time? Which is an argument we've had, not Seth and I, but in general, we've had this argument in college football forever. What makes a blue blood program? And I'm always very aware that anytime we do a show, there's this certain small percentage that's brand new. You just happen to have been drawn to college football and you happen to be listening to this podcast for the first time. And it may not even make sense to you when someone says a blue blood because it's different than someone who's just winning right now. You could win right now, but have been terrible historically. So we've always argued amongst ourselves, what is the definition of a blue blood? And kind of the loose definition I've always gone with is you have to have had success over multiple generations. You need to have either won championships or been right there in the championship mix in multiple generations. I basically sum it down to I shouldn't be able to tell the story of college football without you. And most recently, a few years ago, Clemson started to get hot and they went to the title game in 15 and they won it in 16 and they won it in 18 and they played for it again in 19. So certainly that is a very hot run. You could even call that a dynasty if you wanted to. That's a whole nother set of criteria and arguments. But I did not call Clemson a blue blood. I still don't think Clemson is a blue blood. The fact of the matter is they could have won five titles in a row by a million points each. There's nothing you can do in a short amount of time that makes you a blue blood. That's the whole definition. That's the difference between being on a run and being a blue blood program. So with that in mind, which program that isn't already considered one could be the next one? That's what Seth is asking. And I guess Clemson is my first answer. I think Georgia would be another answer. 
Uh, which leads me to my following question back to you, Seth, and I'm going to have to listen really hard. I mean, really hard if you give me an answer here. Probably a little telepathy is going to be required for me to hear you, but just shout it as loud as you can. Do people out there consider Georgia a blue blood program? I have obviously no objective way of knowing this because I grew up in the state, so I'm really close to the program. So I don't know. I But then again, I myself did not consider them a blue blood growing up which gets you called a hater in your own state, by the way. And so I don't think they're a blue blood now. They haven't won titles across multiple generations. You could tell the story of college football without including the University of Georgia. Here's what you couldn't do. You couldn't tell the story of the last several years of college football without including Georgia, could you? So all of a sudden, they're kind of in that Clemson ship. They're on a run. How long does that run have to go? Well, I would argue decades, years to a couple of decades, there was a, another point of contention I had one time where people started to argue, is Miami a blue blood? And the thing about it is they appeared on the radar in the 80s. So had they just been on the scene long enough? Well, if we're arguing that about Miami in the 80s, certainly Georgia nor Clemson have done enough to obtain a blue blood status. Here could be the honest answer, Seth. Here could be the reality. It may just be that we're never going to have a new one. Because by default of what it takes to be a blue blood, it may just be that we're never going to have a new one and people's attention span isn't even large enough to process this question. I hope I delivered for you. But yeah, I don't. I think if there are a couple out there, Clemson and Georgia, uh, it's, a, it's, an ex, it's a ridiculous that Texas A&M is not one because they've always had the resources to be one. But I don't, I don't know, outside of the ones we already have and the construct of the sport, I'm not sure that we're going to see a playing field that is conducive to producing us a new blue blood. Good question, though. Uh, next up, Candace asked, what is a stadium that I haven't visited yet that I want to get to? I have three of them that always pop in the top of my head. Two of them are in Utah. So the University of Utah and Brigham Young. The closest I came is connecting on my trip to Oregon last year. I connected in Salt Lake City. And I also flew over Provo. I looked right down and saw the stadium. So that's as close as I've gotten, which is not close enough. So I want to go to a game out there. It certainly helps that Brigham Young is joining the Big 12. Uh, it certainly helps that Utah is just really good. And it also should be noted, keep this on your radar, they open against Florida this year. We haven't named the tour for 2023, but whatever we name the tour, could the tour start week one in Salt Lake City? Could we upset some people? who think we should never go to Pac-12 games for some reason or Pac-12 stadiums. You're talking to Pac-12 Pate here. It's my constitutional right to go to as many Pac-12 stadiums as I want to. So those are two of them, Brigham Young, Utah, and then the other one's Oklahoma. Somehow, in the upset of the year, I've never been to a game in Oklahoma. And here's the thing, I've been to Norman. I've been to Norman, but I've always been through their storm chasing. Never for a college football game. Is that a dereliction of my duty? Well, not in spring, but in fall, absolutely it is. But I'm looking to rectify it. See, I admit I have a problem. My problem is I haven't been to a game in Oklahoma, and I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to, but it's not an overnight process. But that does remind me, where's this question? Okay, yeah, Jack hit me with a question. Speaking of college football road trips, <laughs> I've forgotten I told this story. So Jack said, do you still drink that cold brew plus water plus protein powder road trip concoction you mentioned last year? Any new developments in the recipe? from Birmingham, Alabama. Jack, there is a significant development, and that is I don't drink cold brew anymore, and uh, there's a very good reason for it, and it has to do with the Every Given Saturday tour this past year. 
I told the story like a month ago or so, but I'll tell you once more because it was a lightly trafficked show and now everyone's back. So everyone will hear this one. I was chugging cold brew coffee out of a can. The Starbucks stuff, I didn't even put it in the fridge half the time like a psychopath. I just drank it at room temperature, even though it says cold brew on the can. I was drinking it at room temperature. I like my ice the same way, or as you might know it, water. But I was drinking those cold brews like five or six a day. So here's the problem. You're not supposed to do that. And they don't necessarily tell you on the can, but trust me, you're not supposed to do that five or six times a day. Maybe once in the morning, maybe once after lunch, maybe, but not half a dozen. So I ignored all that. And I was drinking those cold brews. And then a funny thing started to happen. When I would open up my laptop screen in the morning to do work, it got brighter and brighter. But I wasn't adjusting anything. Something was adjusting in me. And it got to the point where I had to squint to look at my laptop screen. When I went outside, I had to squint. Like the sunlight, even if it was cloudy, was bothering my eyes to the point where I couldn't fully open them up. Then... Since I didn't properly diagnose what it was to begin with, I thought I just needed to change my contacts because I wear the two-week disposables like three months at a time. I just changed my contacts and I thought, all right, that'll be good. Next morning, no, it wasn't good. And it was kind of coming in waves. So it would ebb and it would flow. It didn't consistently get worse, but over time in the aggregate, it got worse. So we get to the beginning of the season last year, Cincinnati at Arkansas. And that's about when it was the worst. And I realized I couldn't open my eyes on the live shots. Like we have LED lighting on our live shots and I could not even see. So I had to wear sunglasses on air. Some people thought I was just trying to make a fashion statement. And if you know anything about me, you know fashion is the last thing on this godforsaken planet I'm concerned about. I was wearing it because I couldn't see. Believe it or not, there is at least one person out here that still wears sunglasses for the functional proper purpose. And that proper purpose is cold brew has made you go blind. Uh, which brings me to my next point. I started to lose vision in one of my eyes. So one of them was far more blurry than the other. I hardly remember anything about the Cincy Arkansas game because I kind of couldn't see it. And so I asked myself, self, what is it you've changed about yourself in the last four or five months that could have led to this? Diet was the same. Lifestyle was the same. Exercise routine was the same. I realized I started drinking those cold brews. So I stopped drinking them completely. And 48 hours later, Vision is totally back. Light sensitivity is gone. So Jack, to answer your question, yes, my friend, there has been a change in the recipe. I still do the protein powder. I still cut it with water. None of that milk nonsense, but I do not add the cold brew. I have supplemented it with Mio energy shots. This is a very, very big secret that I'm giving away, but if you will watch Late Kick Live and you want to know what the mysterious liquid is in the chalice of supremacy, it is water with a couple of shots of Mio energy. It's got, let me see, I've got one right in front of me. So these things have, well, first off, they're not a sponsor of the show, so I'm going to do this quickly. Uh, they have 90 milligrams of caffeine per squeeze. I do a couple of squeezes, bomb, 180, which is the exact same caffeine content as one of those cans of cold brew, except here's the added benefit. doesn't say it on the label, but it doesn't take your eyesight away. So that's a good day for me. Next up, this is my favorite thing when we record a podcast and there's breaking news. And someone asks me about it, which is oftentimes the way I hear about the breaking news. No, not with this. I actually knew this was coming. Not to flex on you, but this was kind of known in the industry. So Heather asks, with the Ravens, Todd Munkin news breaking, your thoughts on Georgia's next offensive coordinator? 
And if you are unfamiliar with what is happening today, the Ravens have hired Todd Munkin away from Athens as their new OC, and Georgia needs an offensive coordinator, except they don't, because this was already taken care of weeks ago, and it's kind of been known around Georgia circles that Mike Bobo, who's already on campus, already on the staff, has been there, was just going to be elevated to OC. That is what Dogs 24-7 is reporting has happened as I look on my screen right in front of me. And that's not a surprise. I would have been surprised if it was not Mike Bobo. Now, pay close attention because this is where the fun starts. Like I said a few minutes ago, I know any given show we do, there are some new listeners. And if you're new here, maybe you're just new to the sport. Let me tell you what happens in real life. In real life, if you have success over a sustainable period of time, people just kind of stop questioning you. Basically, what they do is they learn through observation that what you do is working, so they don't question you. Even if they don't understand your methodology, they understand the results, prove that the method works. I'm not going to question it. Well, now you are stepping into the world of college football, and this is not the real world, and those principles get left at the door. So you got a guy like Kirby Smart at Georgia, who's won the past two championship games that we have played in this sport. And yet, you will hear people from wall to wall, from Savannah to Columbus to Albany to Clayton in the state of Georgia, question the elevation of Mike Bobo as new offensive coordinator. I'm not going to waste time with you today breaking down in an analytical fashion how I think Mike Bobo's offense will do. Here's why he was elevated. These are the things I know to be true. Number one, he knows the system. Number two, Kirby Smart trusts him. And that concludes the list. It concludes the list. It's like in the office when Michael names Dwight, the manager of the Dunder Mifflin branch. And Stanley looks around and says, why Dwight? And Michael says, because he has never lied. And then Stanley says, how does that qualify him to run a branch? And then Michael says, because that is all it takes. Yeah, that's all it takes. Head coach has got to trust you. You got to know the program and the organization. That is all it takes. Next question. I think Jonathan had a good one here. He said, outside of Jim Harbaugh, who do you think the next coach to make the leap to the NFL could be? That was from what I hope is pronounced as Mishawaka, Indiana. Check Steve Wolfong on that pronunciation. I think, so to be clear, Jim Harbaugh did not go to the NFL, but what he's asking is, yes, there's been flirtation with Harbaugh, whereas everyone else never lets you know they're interested until they go. So who could that be? I worry about this. And I live a pretty worry-free life, but I do worry about this, losing our big coaches to the NFL. Seems like there was a lull for a little while, and now there's the threat again. And you always hear rumors about Ryan Day, and you will hear rumors about Smart at Georgia. You'll hear rumors, as you already do, about Lincoln Riley at USC. And truthfully, all of them could. That doesn't mean there's firsthand knowledge of any of that. There's not. You're not going to have firsthand knowledge of that. But what you can do is you could put context clues together. You could look and say, number one, who's good not just at building a team, but at running an organization at the college level, because that translates very well. Number two, who has a hyper-focused specialization on one side of the ball? Think Lincoln Riley offense, Kirby Smart defense, etc. And number three, Who's in a place right now where there could be things bubbling beneath the surface that may be out of their control or out of the program's control that just leaves them fed up with the college game? And so, again, these are all hypotheticals. Please understand these are hypotheticals. But I could see a world where Lincoln Riley 
is at USC and they go to the Big Ten and it's just a really, really weird fit. Uh, it puts them at a competitive disadvantage because of travel. Uh, there could be other things about college he just doesn't like, like how NIL is evolving, all sorts of things. The transfer portal, even though that works to his benefit. Uh, Kirby Smart, same way. Kirby Smart, you know, I could see him in a situation where he's just at Georgia and wins a lot and realizes, wow, I'm not even 50 years old yet. Maybe I do want to try the NFL. At Ohio State, I could see Ryan Day being fed up with the inequity of his university's approach to the changing landscape of college football versus some other big-time programs out there. Ohio State has famously been very hesitant and or drug their feet when it comes to things like NIL. Well, that's out of a coach's control, and yet it affects a coach because you're the one that has to have the record next to your name at the end of the day. So those are three that come to mind, but you never know what an organization is looking for because all it takes is one. You could look at, I don't know, Mike Norvell at Florida State. Just draw a name out of the hat. You could look at him, and you could have 29 or 30 NFL GMs and front offices say, no, I would never touch that guy. But if there's that one or two out there who have a different formula for winning and therefore they have different critical factors and traits they want in their coach and Mike Norvell fits it, it doesn't matter if 30 or even 31 other teams wouldn't have you. If there's one out there that will, that's all it takes. And so you can't possibly know, is my point. You can't possibly know what the critical factors for all 32 of the teams at that level are. Therefore, just as soon as you and I could sit here and talk about these major names, it could be that there's some guy totally off the radar that ends up being the most attractive choice. Next question is from Drew in Nashville, Tennessee, where I eventually will be this week. Drew said, how do you think the new schools in the Big 12 will fare in their first year? A crapshoot in their first year. And frankly, I won't even feel comfortable predicting that until the summer when rosters are finalized and I've paid more attention to it. But let's just pretend, Drew, that you asked, how will they fare in general? This is a great question right now, I think, in college football. So Cincinnati, Houston, Central Florida, and Brigham Young, those are the four teams that have come to the Big 12. How will they fare? Now, I know immediately your mind probably does what my mind does. You think Big 12 wide open, and you think Texas and OU about to leave, and you think Central Florida's been good recently, Cincy's been good recently, BYU, they always have tough teams, Houston's located in a very, very talent-rich geographical hotbed, and they've done things in the past too. So in other words, you're thinking they could pinball their way in there and instantly be contenders, which is one of the cards in the deck. But I do want to point something out. None of them are recruiting at a high enough level right now. None of them. And I was looking at this on signing day, and I was going to ask Wolfong this, but we ran out of time on the signing day show. But you've got to ask yourself, just like Utah, think about when Utah came into the Pac-12. Utah was putting up undefeated seasons out there in the Mountain West, and they were right there on the precipice of crashing the BCS party, and people rightly looked at Utah and said, ooh, they're ripe to go into a Power 5 league. Well, they did. They went into the Pac-12, and they have not lost fewer than two games in any year. Why is that? Did Utah get worse? No. I actually would argue in the aggregate they've gotten better. But so has the level of competition. Now, there's a pause. I paused there on purpose because I know what just happened. I said the competition level's gotten better. And sure enough, someone down in Louisiana let's call you Shane from Shreveport, yelled across the entire country, no, the Pac-12 sucks. 
Uh, well, I did not say the Pac-12 is the equal of the SEC. What I did say in context was the Pac-12's level of competition across the board is significantly better than the Mountain West. That can be true. Both of those things can be true. There's a, there's a little context that has to be grasped here. So Utah goes to the Pac-12, and they've been good. They've actually been one of the more consistent programs out there. Kyle Whittingham, same head coach, has been there in the entire time. But what they haven't done is they haven't broken through on the national level. They've won the conference two years in a row, actually. But they haven't broken through on the national level because they haven't been able to navigate their schedule unscathed. That's the challenge and that's what you have to recruit good athletes, enough of them, to be able to do. You will not ever run up on any one team that's the equal to a Georgia or Clemson or Alabama on those schedules. But what you will do is you'll run up on a lot of teams that have somewhere between the 30th and the 50th best rosters in the country. While that may not impress you if all you care about is the playoff, the cumulative effect that upping that level of competition has over the span of four quarters, and then over the span of 12 games equals a couple of losses, unless you're recruiting enough to overcome it. you got to recruit enough good athletes to overcome that. So that brings me back to these teams. These teams I just mentioned are not recruiting top 20 classes. So it could just be that they're thrown into the barrel out there in the Big 12, and it's the most fun regular season product to watch in all of college football. I could see a world where we get a few years into the new landscape of college football, and we learn two things. Number one, the Big 12 is unlikely to produce a national championship contender once they get to the playoff, even an expanded playoff. But number two, it's okay because the regular season product out there is going to be incredible. So you may be watching, it's like a 7A football team watching 4A football. The 4A football could be hardcore competitive. And it could be down to the wire every week. Now, the 7A team watches and knows, now we're better than the teams we're watching. But that doesn't make it any less entertaining. You could be a Big Ten fan and you could be watching. You don't have to just watch it and say, hey, so-and-so would be favored by 10 over all of those teams. By the way, ask Michigan how much that mattered against TCU. My point is, it doesn't always have to be framed against the backdrop of a playoff. I encourage you. Just at least try this lifestyle out that I live. At least try it out for a week or two. Think about something in a bubble. College football. Think about a college football matter in a bubble. If, if you could understand how great this world is, where you could watch Texas Tech versus Baylor, and it's 36 to 33 with two minutes left, and you just be entertained by the game, and you just think about who could win the Big 12 championship, and it doesn't get followed up with this sentence. Yeah, but either one of them would get blown out in the playoff. You don't have to live that way. It's a great life. You can just compartmentalize things in this sport. It's, I'm telling you guys, I promise, there's an unlimited amount of chairs over here. It's a lot more fun. We're watching an amateur boxing match, and it's ultra competitive. There's a guy behind us screaming, well, neither one of them could take down Ali in his prime. We know, guy. We, you haven't figured out anything that the rest of us don't already know. We've figured out something you don't know. There's some enjoyment to be had in the subtlety and nuance of college football. It's not always Steelers versus Ravens. Yeah, but could either of them beat the Chiefs in the AFC championship game? That's how pro sports are because pro sports are constructed to be postseason centric. College sports are not. 
This is kind of a recent phenomenon, actually. College sports are not like that. So anyway, I think the Big 12, with the new additions, could just be an ultra-attractive, entertaining league that may fall well short of being able to deliver in the postseason. And both of those things are okay. There are things in life that people tell you you should be frustrated by, and yet you're okay with it. I got something that I guarantee you most people will be frustrated by, but if you're a longtime listener here, you're totally okay with, and that is this. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The quickest ad toss in the business is still in business, and that is yours truly here. Next up is Shane. He said, hey, I need an underrated movie to watch. Yeah, so most of you do. You need to go find a movie called The Words. It stars Bradley Cooper and Zoe Saldana. I don't know why this wasn't a smash hit, because it's got big names in it. It is a great movie, great story. It's like 2012, so it's fairly recent, like within the last decade or so. There were members of the staff here at Late Kick that recently had not seen the movie. They have watched it. They've all given their approval. There is famously another employee here who shall remain nameless, who has been a holdout. And you know what? That's that's her problem. That's her issue. Don't let it be your issue, though. The words or the T-H-E, the, the words. Really good movie. I have previously not given shall I of supremacy to movies but if I start doing it, the words gets a chalice of supremacy. Five chalice. So five chalai. There we go. New idea right here and now. We are going to grade things like star rankings, only it's going to be a chalai rating. And the words, solid four and a half chalai. For anyone new, chalai is the plural of chalice. And while some voice in your head may be telling you chalices is the plural of chalice, that's a lie. The new rules are very simple. You can put an accented I on the end of anything, and it makes it plural. Status, stati. Chalice, chali. And so on and so forth. Next up, it's from Daniel. He said, what is a shocking result in 2023 that would not actually shock you? This one's easy to me. Texas A&M contending for the SEC West would feel like it's out of nowhere, right? Because they just failed to make a bowl game. They were terrible. They were the laughing stock of the sport. Here's the problem. Take it from someone who was dumb enough to say they had a disaster-proof roster in 2022. They've got a really good roster. A lot of times when you suck, it's because you don't have good players. But if you suck and you do have good players, that means, well, it's a critical failure on your part. But it also means there are tweaks that could be made that could provide immediate massive results. Think about it if you're in a room where there's a gas leak. This could be morbid, but follow me here. If you're in a room and there's a gas leak, and you know there's a gas leak, you can smell it, and you got a lighter in your hand, and you flick it once or twice, and the flame doesn't appear. If someone flicks that thing a third time, are you any less terrified? Because you know one spark ignites that whole place. That is how a failing program with an ultra-talented roster feels to me. Texas A&M is a place where you can smell the fumes. You can, you can tell there's a lot of ingredients that just have to come together, and sometimes all it takes is a spark. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Do we live in a world where one Bobby Petrino, being hired as your offensive coordinator, is the spark? He's been the spark before. In fact, he's been on a motorcycle that provided several sparks once upon a time. Look it up if you're too young, kids. But all jokes aside, and trust me, there are several, which you earn if you hire him. And I'm on board with the hire. You just got to understand some of this stuff comes with it. If Bobby Petrino is that, all of a sudden you got a good quarterback. 
you got really good talent, both returning and already in the program. And you've you've got a lot of guys that left. So let's also be real with ourselves. What if the spark is provided by ingredients not being there anymore? You know, what if the wood was wet? We're just using all sorts of ignitable metaphors here. What if the wood was wet and I just removed the moisture from the wood? What if some of those players that transferred out were moistening the wood immunity? And all of a sudden I got rid of them and boom, we're rolling. So I think that would shock people. Certainly if, if A&M was 10-0 or even 9-1 and and they were rolling into November, I, that would shock people. You're not supposed to be able to do that. And typically that's true. You're not supposed to be able to do that. But you're also not supposed to have one of the most talented rosters in the country and miss a bowl game. Certainly uh, that is frowned upon, but that's where we are right now. Next up, this one comes from Morgantown, West Virginia. I'm surprised I haven't been asked about this one more. Tate, next up, he asked a question that I will almost certainly get mad about. Not at Tate, just at at the general ideas that exist out there in the college football ecosystem. He asked, what counts as a ranked win? Are they nullified if the team falls out of the top 25 from Columbia, South Carolina? So anyone who's been around for a while knows this is one of the big points of contention I have with the playoff committee or just the general conversation about how we discuss teams' records and strength of schedule. Now, before I tell you my thoughts on this, let me tell you how I would approach strength of schedule and rating your strength of schedule. I would take the Vegas odds makers poll. So I would take power rankings from Las Vegas and I would have whatever mathematical formula I want to have, but I would use their rankings and look at who you've played, where they rank those teams, and that would be your strength of schedule. Now, why is that different? Some of you don't bet at all and you're not familiar with how that works. The way it works is they don't adjust you up or down simply because you won or lost a game because they understand there are far more things in play in college sports than just your record. To be perfectly clear, what I did not just say is in the Pac-12 conference standings, you shouldn't drop if you lose a game and you shouldn't rise if you win a game. Those are different. You're talking about standings. We're talking about rankings. So in the standings world, merit is earned on the field through wins and losses only. But in a rankings world, in a world of subjectivity, like for instance, seeding the playoff and ranking teams to seed the playoff and in doing so, deciding who played a stronger schedule, there is this very, very, very dumb thing that we do in college sports sometimes. And that is we define how many ranked wins you have, and then we change the definition. Like if I play the number 11 team in the country in week three, and I beat them, and I bang them up pretty bad in the process, and then they go on to lose two or more games because they're unhealthy, and they fall out of the top 25, There are people out there who would say, no, never mind. It looked like you had a top 25 win, but it turns out you didn't. Even though the reason that team is not in the top 25 anymore is due in large part to me beating them. Makes no sense. Absolute no sense whatsoever. So here's what I would love to do. Like the way I define them is I like to define the value of your win on the day it happens. And rarely do I want to revisit it. Now, certainly even I understand there are some extenuating circumstances. For example, there are teams that are just badly overrated. That is true. If I were playing Texas A&M, since I was speaking about them, if I were playing them early in the season and they were ranked in the top 10, 
and it turns out, no, they're not even close to a top 10 team. I don't have a problem with coming in and manually adjusting the value of the win I got over them. I don't mind that. I also don't mind if I beat Texas A&M early in the year and they're unranked, but then they end up being a top five team at the end of the year, it would be perfectly acceptable to me to come in and manually upgrade the value of my win. So I actually retroactively get credit for beating a top five team. I don't have a problem with those. Those are the extremes. Those are the outliers. In general, there is there is no point whatsoever in trying to redefine a team's schedule and strength of schedule week by week. Because the fact is, something that you did to that team when they played you could have negatively impacted them the rest of the year. You you shouldn't have value taken away from your win because you were so good and so effective at what you did that you sent another team spiraling out of control. Teams aren't robotic. They're, they're real people. They aren't robots. So the exact same version of a team doesn't show up 12 weeks out of the year. If that were the case, it would be fine to have a fluid strength of schedule rating because you could be very, very sure that the team you were seeing in week eight was the same team I played in week two. And if by week eight, it turns out that that team really just wasn't as good as we thought they were, okay, that's fine. But this is not robot world. This is the real world. So to answer the question, no, I'd rarely remove you having a ranked win just because that team's not ranked at the end of the season. I don't personally believe in that, but the way that I could remove that entirely is just use Vegas power ratings because they don't do that. There are some times where they'll have a four-loss team still inside the top 15. Why? Because they've played four of the top 20 teams in the country and lost to four of them, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they should fall out of the top 40. Whereas you may have another team in the top 10 in the AP that hasn't played anyone ranked inside the top 60 all year. So the subjectivity in college football is such that I think you need that kind of voice to define strength of schedule. Because the way we do it right now sometimes is really, really dumb. Also, here's another thing to think about. Who said 25 is the magic number? So let's just pretend for a second that your resume is being compared to mine. You have resume A, I have resume B. Let's say you played the number 21 team in the country and then you played 11 other teams ranked in the 100s. You have one top 25 win. Let's say I didn't play anyone in the top 25, but I played number 26, 27, 28, 29, and 30. Our resumes, when they're put together on that selection show, makes yours look better than mine because you played one team that's inside that magical line in the sand, that number 25. Meanwhile, if you could see a little bit past that line, I played literally the next five teams in line, whereas you played not another team even remotely close. So you had a much easier schedule than me. I've got a much more difficult strength of schedule, but people wouldn't know it because somebody somewhere in, I don't know, a production room said, hey, let's make a graphic that shows how many wins you have in the the uh, 25 should do it, top 25. That's not at all the way an informed college football public should be going about defining their strength of schedules. <sighs> all right, moving on to a much more harmonious question. Someone asked me about a video that I posted on Instagram in my Instagram story last night. And it was, so I'm in Columbus, as I said, I'm in Harris County right now, which is just north of Columbus, Georgia. That's where I grew up. As I said at the beginning, I'm in my childhood bedroom as I record right now. So I took a little drive around downtown Columbus last night. So two nights ago, I guess, as you're listening. And I was just seeing some of the sights. 
And uh, I've told you guys the story several times before. I'll probably tell this story again sometime soon. It's about that time again. About kind of my upbringing, where I came from, what I did before I got in the media business. And I tell that story a lot, not to brag. I mean, who in the world would brag that they worked in a fabric warehouse? No, I tell the story all the time out of immense pride and understanding that there are a lot of you who may be 23 years old right now who either did or didn't finish college. And if you didn't, you feel like a failure because you've dropped out and you're going nowhere fast. Or if you did not drop out, you got your degree and you're still feeling like you're going nowhere fast. And I trust me, I know how that feels because I was there. And those were the times where I would have been working in that fabric warehouse. And I really love looking back on that because I know it's a message to a whole bunch of people who are in that position present day and who have no clue what's going to happen. And I just like to tell you how I got myself out of there with a lot of help. I certainly didn't do it on my own, uh, but I was able to get myself out of there and end up doing what I love to do and have a worldwide audience to listen to it. So I was there last night. Well, Jeff asked if I really worked in a fabric warehouse or if it's just a metaphor, because I love, I love delving into the metaphorical speaking every now and then, but Jeff, yes, Trust me, my friend. I put the video in my Instagram story last night. If you're not following on Instagram, by the way, oh, you miss so much. At Late Kick Josh, you miss so much on there. So when I was riding around last night, I went down 12th Street in downtown Columbus. It's like a ghost town at night, not a soul down there. And I put video of that fabric warehouse in my story, uh, which should be up, depending on when you're listening right now, should be up until later uh, when Tuesday night. I get my days mixed up. So you can take a look at it for yourself. It's everything you would imagine a rundown fabric warehouse to be in the Mill District of Columbus, Georgia. So yeah, there you go, Jeff. It's as real as can be. But when you look at that place and then you realize, hey, nowadays we have the number one college football show in digital media. You understand if that could happen, you can do anything you set your mind to. Basically, it's like a modern day version of Lose Yourself by Eminem. So just have that playing. Just crank the eight mile soundtrack in the back of your subconscious as you watch me drive by the fabric warehouse. If I accomplish nothing else today, but I accomplish that energy, I will have succeeded. So I, irresponsibly, am up against some meetings and radio hits now. So I'm going to cut it short. Don't worry. I have got a loaded mailbag. I'm still looking at a bunch of questions, so I probably won't even ask for new submissions next week. I'll just continue going down the list I have now. Quick reminder, which you did in a big way last week, and so if you didn't participate, now is the time to jump on board. Continue listening and everything you're doing. I appreciate it. Our numbers are bonkers. Just make sure that you follow or subscribe, whichever it gives you the option to do, in the podcast feed. Because it really, really helps us a whole lot. It doesn't cost you anything. Nothing happens. You don't get spammed or anything. It just helps our numbers. And you've continued to do it. And so this is me just asking you to continue to subscribe. I know you can't subscribe more than once. But what you can do, and what we are not above doing around here, is telling your friends and family to do it. And if they're uncooperative, it's okay. They'll eventually put their phone down, and we'll grab it, and we'll get the job done ourselves. Appreciate it so much. I'm sending this off to be produced and sent out to you. So for producer Jesse, director Colin, PA Bradley on the stick today, I think. He'll actually edit this. I'm Josh Pate. Take care. I'll see you Thursday night for Late Kick Live. Until then, God bless. <laughs>